Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 161 for the 8th of January in the year 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me this evening, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, this second Wednesday of 2020? Good evening, Jason. I am doing pretty well, and I am glad to, you know, have uh, have almost the hump day behind us. So it's been a good week back, but I am ready yeah, ready, ready for the weekend. So we're not uh, not starting with any kind of shortened week. It's the the full thing. So did you get any email? That, well, and I am the uh, technology integration and innovation specialist at Cassidy School. Did you get any email this week at the uh, the Digital Academy? <laughs> That's an excellent question. The answer is a solid yes. And um, I've also been uh, covering our main line on phones too, and the phone's been running a little bit. So that's a, uh, I guess a good sign for the continuation of the program, but also been an intense week um, at the, sometimes what I like to call the digital salt mines where we go into work every day. So, um, but this, this is not a conversation about my job. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast where we take a look at headlines from across the techosphere and we try to determine maybe what impact these headlines and the ongoing stories of the evolution of technology, what impact it will have on schools and classrooms and learning. And this week is always an interesting week every year. I think this is the third or fourth time we've done this podcast during CES week. And so a lot of our conversation will be about CES. And uh, for those of you unaware of, of that, and to be honest, you'd have to ignore uh, most of mainstream media, uh, or at least past the first page of mainstream media uh, to uh, miss this. But um, the CES is the Consumer Electronics Show. It's a, a once-a-year show in Las Vegas, and it uh, features almost all the major vendors. And, in fact, this year, one of the headlines I'm interested to talk about is Apple returned back to CES this year. They had uh, uh, spurned it long ago. They're not pitching products. They're talking about a, a, a particular issue that I think will be an interesting uh, uh, maybe juxtaposition based on some of the other stories we're going to talk about. But a lot of what you see later in 2020 will be talked about this week. And, more importantly, some ridiculous things that will never make it to market always appear at CES as well. Ginormous, you know, uh, 300-inch televisions that uh, cost tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars that uh, aren't, you know, really realistic from a marketplace will appear at CES. And usually there's also a good sense of maybe what's going on in the broader techosphere. So um, if you want to find out more about the stories we're talking about, we always post every link, whether we talk about it or, or not, to our website, edtechsr.com. You can also take a look at the show notes, which are available in most podcasting apps for a list of specific ours we talked about. And Wes, where would you like to start off this week? Well, why don't you lead us off? Well, I'm going to do a quick shout out. Well, and this is, I don't know, holy cow, lots of news. Uh, friends in Puerto Rico, I was just... Um, waiting at our church for our daughter who is at our youth group tonight. And our we have a close family friend who lives near San Juan in a, in a town called Ibonito. And they lost all power and have, have not had power except, and he said during Hurricane Maria, <clears throat> the cell towers evidently didn't have battery backup. 
the the uh, earthquake, uh, which was like two nights ago or two morning in the four thirty in the morning, um, it, it took out basically the main power generation station that they have. So anyway, they have battery backups this time. So it's kind of surreal. So there he is in his dark house, you know, without power. And, uh, you know, we're, we're texting, you know, from, from island to mainland. Uh, and, you know, here we are living in this nice Nirvana-like existence where, you know, we're not having wildfires and 115 degree Fahrenheit temperatures as folks are in Australia. And, you know, we didn't just lose all power to our little island and, so anyway, there was just, just, that was kind of a weird technology thing to, you know, cause it's not just current events, you know, you're, you're interacting digitally with, with somebody. So, um, why don't you start us off with CES? I actually have not read a lot of CES headlines. Uh, I, I carried forward a few, uh, from last week, um, about some tech correction and social media stuff, but I'd love to, to jump into the CES stuff. Cause I'm thinking maybe it'll be positive. You know, we don't want to be Debbie Downer here on the EdTech Situation Room. And there's going to always be some exciting, fun, new things to talk about at CES. Right. Well, um, you know, the thing about CES, again, a lot of the stuff that's released here ends up being what we refer to as vaporware, uh, both software and hardware. And a lot of times what manufacturers are doing is floating test balloons to see if a certain product that may be not quite developed to its market fruition yet is going to be viable enough to go all the way with that product. And so a lot of things that end up being pitched at CES don't ever exist. In fact, I, I saw a lot more stories this year uh, that try to analyze um, you know, what from last year's CES didn't appear in the marketplace because that's always kind of a useful piece for, uh, uh kind of determining how you should approach the, this year's pieces. But a couple of, 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 I'll go over kind of maybe the, the, the major headlines right now. And there's a couple of philosophical ones I want to talk about. Nine to five Google, um, is reporting, uh, their favorites from CES thus far. And I have to say CES is also interesting because there's a before show, there's a during show, there's an after show. Uh, the actual CES conference is actually one of many events that's going on in Las Vegas this week that's also pitching various types of consumer electronics. In some cases, many of the things that are most interesting at CES aren't even part of the official show. But 9to5Google says that its favorite thing so far, Samsung has announced something called the Galaxy Chromebook, and the Galaxy name has been um, a longstanding branding by Samsung to take its best featured products and say this is kind of their gold standard for products. Samsung is best known uh, in many cases for having dozens of products out at any given time in a particular category. They may have 12 Android phones out at any given time or 15 different kinds of notebooks. But the Samsung Galaxy Chromebook is a $999 Chromebook that by any any definition is extremely high end. Um, the uh, standard issue is a uh, uh, what they call a Fiesta Red, so a, a very bright red metal case, uh, i5, uh, 10th generation processor with 8 or 16 gigs of RAM, 256 gigabytes of storage, two USB-C ports, but more importantly, um, not only do they include a what's called an S Pen, or as some people mock as the Spin, that's the pen that is featured in um, the Galaxy Note uh, phone that is a very popular uh, phone, or some people would say fabled because of its size, but also it's two-in-one form factor, which means it folds over to be a tablet, also features a 4K screen. 
And that is not uh, that unusual because Lenovo has a 4K screen Chromebook. But the reason why it's interesting is because it's all high-end products or all high-end pieces. And with the, the pen, and Samsung is pretty well known for doing uh, interesting things with Styli, I guess is the uh, uh, way to put it. Um, that it, it's probably a pretty good offering. And, and again, $999 is the current price for that, which means it's a very competitive product in the Chromebook world. Um, also, uh, another interesting product, it, well, actually many interesting products, the Google Assistant is making headlines because not only is Google announcing that it is uh, extending the uh, uh, capability of the Google Assistant, it's also announcing several new partnerships where the Google Assistant will appear in hardware. And for those of you that are not consistent listeners of the podcast, I'm more in the Alexa world. Wes and his family are more in the Google Assistant world. And from a a major headline standpoint, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I should say Madam A and the Amazon uh, architecture has has tended to dominate the market because there's just so many products that, that utilize it. And the platform seems a little more advanced. But I think it's very interesting that Google is uh, still uh, still pushing that. Several new uh, Wear OS devices, that is um, Google smartwatch operating system, and there are a number of new smartwatches that have the what's called the, the new Snapdragon Wear 3100 uh, processor. One of the biggest criticisms of Wear OS devices, and I am a Wear OS user, is that, that there's been very little on the hardware front, so I thought that was very interesting. And then also, uh, Lenovo introduced something that is uh, uh, very tempting. Uh, it's called the IdeaPad Duet, which is a $279 Chrome OS tablet. As we've talked in the past, Google has experimented with and canceled its plans to develop in the tablet world with Chrome OS, but apparently this $279 uh, uh, option is pretty fast and um uh, 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 from all, from, from all early reviews from reviewers at the CES show is, is an interesting product that probably worth the $279 price tag. So let's stop there for a moment, Wes. Anything about the Google offerings that tempts you? Well, I am definitely, uh, as you mentioned, you know, going to be interested in all the Google Assistant stuff, uh, because we are pretty, uh, you know, heavy into the, into the Google world. I've been thinking about this, you know, I don't know if you did a survey at your school for how many folks have a smart speaker um, and use, I don't know, maybe, maybe more people with the prevalence of iPhones are using Siri. Um, you know, how many people are you are talking to their computers on a regular basis? Um, I am all the time, you know, every day and it's texting today. I was a little frustrated because I can't get Siri to spell one of our daughter's names, right? And I, anyway, it's, a, it's frustrating, but um Anyway, it's it's great to see Google continuing to improve. You know, we've talked before on the show uh, about why competition in so many ways. I know we've talked about T-Mobile and, you know, Verizon, AT&T. I mean, just benefits consumers, right? So we don't want to have Amazon pull so far ahead of the competition that there is, uh, oh, hey, power just came back on in Puerto Rico. Um, <laughs> squirrel, um, we don't want to, we don't want to just have that monopoly because that's going to, that's not going to be good for consumers. Uh, so I'm, you know, glad to hear that. Um, I'm also very, you know, curious to see how the Chromebook is going to continue to evolve and to kind of to share a little bit about where we're at at our school. We're, we're not one to one. We got about 950 kids, uh, pre K through 12. Uh, we've got, you know, 
carts of devices, but we are very much uh, late adopter laggard when it comes to like the adoption curve in private and independent schools. And so here in a couple of weeks, we're about to take a trip with about 10 folks down to Dallas to visit four of our peer schools. And we're going to be going to a school that is Chromebook, a school that is MacBook and iPad, a school that is Microsoft Surface, and a school that is, is BYOD. And I think they've been BYOD since like 2013 or 2014. I, I heard today the, the school that's Microsoft Surface uh, based, I think it's like since 2001, uh, Melinda Gates is a graduate of their school. And so anyway, it's going to be very interesting. And as an IT guy for the last four years, among other hats, of course, I love Chrome. I love it. I love supporting it. It is so wonderful. It is, you know, designed as as a cloud-based device, and it is just fantastic. And as, again, we've talked on the show before, you know, the web of 2020 is not the web of 2005, of 2010. It is very mature. There are so many things that you can do with the web, and... It's going to be interesting to see what our teachers and our administrators want to do and what direction we go. Um, and because I, and I'm not trying to say like my mind is made up. It's not. I mean, I love my Mac. Like I'm on, I'm on a Mac Pro now, right? With the touch bar and, you know, I've got my, my iPad Pro right here with my Apple Pencil 2. I've got my iPhone 7. So, you know, I'm porting some old tech here. <clears throat> my Gen 3 Apple Watch. I mean, I'm all in on the Apple ecosystem, uh, but I use Chrome every day. It's my primary browser. It's the primary tool I use to teach fifth and sixth grade digital media literacy. Uh, we really wouldn't have to use anything else besides Chrome and the web to do all the things that we need to do. And, you know, if you honestly break down what I do during my day, uh, a large percentage, you know, tonight I was actually working on some ebook stuff and conversions and EPUB to PDF, you know, I was doing some media stuff. And so I was really happy to have my Mac, but for a lot of stuff, you don't have to have it. So I, I got excited. Was it at, um, the, uh, what, what's Google's big show? Uh, Google IO. Yeah. I think it was maybe two years ago. Was it when they announced that new, uh, Chrome when they went, they did their Chrome hardware. Right. That, um, you know, was kind of exciting, but then was just kind of a flop. And, and so. We'll we'll see. But what I do think we're going to continue to see is the evolution of operating systems to, you know, become more like mobile devices where you have more sandboxing of different apps where, you know, everything is not going to be able to bring down the house, so to speak, as far as security and crashes and things like that. Updates are going to happen more seamlessly in the background. Um, and it's a next generation, new generation. It's not just, you know, Windows 10 with more code strapped on um, or even Mac OS for that matter, you know, with its Linux core. Um, so that that has me uh, most excited. Was there anything you thought that was really significant? You said the Google Assistant built into hardware. Uh, does that mean new hardware or what exactly does that mean? For uh, more, more hardware. And then also Google has also announced that they are adding more extensibility and functionality into the Google system. And the one that I thought was most interesting and I have a follow up on this in a moment is the fact that you can also start to have conversations of, with, with the Google assistant regarding, uh, privacy. So for example, if the Google assistant uh, it accidentally turns on because of something that you said, you can say, Hey, Google, forget that. 
Uh, you can also talk about, you can also ask, uh, uh, Google how long or if it's, if, if it's main, if, if it's keeping your recordings, I'm having some problems talking tonight, uh, keeping your recordings and it, it can help you launch into settings inside of the, um, the interface for the purpose of, um, uh, you know, telling it to not keep recordings, for example. And you could also tell it to delete your recordings over a period of time. So delete today's recordings, delete the last week's recordings, delete the last month's recordings, delete all my recordings, which I think is also an interesting privacy feature as well. So, I mean, one of the things that's been generally true, and we, we've talked about intelligent personal systems, of which I have done groundbreaking research on uh, in the classroom, is that the functionality has just stalled out on all of these platforms, right? And it's, 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 it's interesting, right? And for folks that have always been in on voice assistant line functionality like US, um, you know, it, it hasn't mattered as much because you've already found value in the architecture. But for those that are leery about it or are looking for it to be more natural language, there has been very little uh, progress in these in comparison to the hype of five or six years ago. So I think it's really very exciting that Google's headed in that direction. So a couple quick Mac things, 9to5Mac, the sister site to 9to5Google, uh, uh, highlighted their favorite things so far from Mac folks. Uh, remember, Apple's not at this conference, except they kind of are, which we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, the three things they highlighted, first of all, Line Doc has released um, a um, uh, an all-in-one docking station for the larger Macs, the 15, 16-inch MacBook Pros, and it's a pretty interesting solution because it uses USB-C. It sits right below the MacBook, and what it allows you to do is is something quite interesting. It adds a ton of ports, so a lot of the ports you lost by going to a USB-C MacBook, along with up to two terabytes of storage. Um, it's Thunderbolt-based, not just USB-C, which means it's super fast, and it allows you to replace a lot of the power ports uh, or powerful ports that you lost in the most recent versions of the Mac. So that that was their first um, a super find. Um, Hyperjuice has released a new charger that's super interesting. Um, it's a 100-watt charger that has two USB and two um, uh, more traditional USB ports on it for a total of 100 watts, which means you can power your very power-sucking MacBook Pro along with an iPad and an iPhone and have enough charging in that one box to do it all. That's super interesting, and I think uh, 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 interesting find. And then also, there's a new um, HomeKit tech available from Adobe, and I hadn't known they were in the smart home world, but apparently Adobe smart home products uh, are now talking to HomeKit, which is the architecture around Apple's uh, uh, um, architecture of Internet of Things. Hmm. Anything on your buy list there? Well, eh, maybe on the dock, you know, I, I don't know. I, uh, I'm in the computer lab now teaching, so I find myself moving between a uh, a 17 inch uh, iMac and, you know, then when I'm out, out and about, you know, my laptop. So I don't actually dock my, my laptop that much. Um, I, you know, the port port stuff is, is pretty, pretty huge though. Um, so I, uh, you know, might be, might be mildly interested in that, but I don't think I'll be going out and, you know, spending money in the next month on that. Is that, but some of those are products that are available today, I guess. Right? Oh yeah, it's, it's, the charger is, and, it, and right. to be frank, I, I think that hundred uh, watt charger. I mean, let's be, let me be honest. I, I'm not lacking in chargers at the Knifer home, so 
Um, I have plenty of opportunities to charge every all my devices, and USB-C has actually made that worse for me because every time I see a new USB charger from like Anchor, and they're, they've got some really cool stuff right now they just released from Anchor, uh, thin, light, and very powerful chargers, um, I probably don't even buy a charger. So let me pivot away from products for a second. By the way, tons of great new Windows laptops are available from all the major manufacturers, some of them consumer-facing, some of them business-facing, some of them gaming uh, a piece. But technology, I really want to talk about because it's so interesting who showed up to talk about it. Uh, Apple came back to CES this year, and, and it's been a while since they've been at CES. And in fact, they in general have moved away from conferences as a means of, of, of touting their products. But they have, um, their own, they have their own events. They get bigger yeah. media splash by you know hosting and having their own events. And so that's absolutely strategy. yeah, absolutely. And uh, they showed back up this year not as an exhibitor. But rather, they are there to talk about privacy. And there have been a lot of privacy-focused talks at CES. And this year, Jane Horvath, who, who is Apple's Senior Director of Global Privacy, interesting title, um, showed up to talk a little bit about um, uh, 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 privacy and was part of a Chief Privacy Officer Roundtable uh, discussing what consumers are looking for and what they want in regards to that. And sure enough, this, the CNET article I clicked on was playing an ad in the background. But, um, and it is interesting that Apple is showing up not to tout products, but to talk about how important they perceive privacy to be to end users and also what they're doing that's different than everyone else. And we've talked about this a number of times in the past, but Apple has gone uh, uh, in a direction that doubles down on the privacy conversation and partly because they charge a premium for their hardware and partly because they tend to uh, aim their products at a certain segment of the market, they have been um, overwhelmingly willing to tell you about their privacy-focused products. So interesting that Apple's returning back in that way. There were some interesting ads, I think, across from CES last year, right? I think Apple yes. had something jabbing at Google, if I remember right, in terms of privacy. Um, these are important things. And I'll not to completely digress too much about this. We may talk a little China, um, you know, later. But I had a conversation today with one of our teachers. There are huge differences in the values of China with regard to technology, with regard to the way their surveillance, um, it, you know, culture has developed with the way that they're exporting that to other countries, uh, with, I would say, the historic focus that we've had on freedom of expression, protecting individual rights, um, you know, having a bill of rights in a constitution, um, you know, not, not to be too political, but <laughs> thing, current events are a little depressing, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, we, we have historically in the United States, and I think we need to continue to stand up for those values. And I think it's, you know, a, a significant big deal for Apple to do this because this is a, this is a major differentiator. Uh, of course, it's 2020. There's probably a lot of us, you know, setting some goals, thinking about, you know, do we want to eat better? Do we want to lose weight? Do we want to exercise? Yada, yada. Uh, the whole health thing, you know, with the watch and, and with the phone. My wife today actually was like setting up her health app. She's like, should I share my you know data with Apple? And I'm like, yeah, definitely. You know, no problem. I mean, she hadn't actually had it cloud synced. So that meant that her watch when she went on a, a walk without her phone, you know, hadn't been talking. And now it is because it's connected via the cloud. And so I, I have really good confidence in Apple's, you know, we had, a, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, 
you know, there was there, there some articles about the privacy things and the location information that, you know, has been shared from the iPhone and, you know, people trying to say there's egg on Apple's face for that. But, you know, overall, Apple has a strong commitment to privacy. So I think this is significant uh, to put our little ed tech, you know, hats on. Uh, we all need to have our well, privacy advocacy, uh, our legal compliance hats on, you know, when it comes to student information. Um, one of the things that a friend of mine who is a, a tech director of a very large nearby district, um, they're doing, they, they're apparently, do, they're doing, a, a, I think, an admirable job looking at all the different data silos that, you know, all the programs, the, the websites, all these things that have student information and they're mapping those and making sure that they're doing their, their due diligence for compliance with privacy uh, law and to make sure that, I mean, at a, at a bare minimum, right, all this stuff needs to be encrypted with, with uh, you know, secure uh, SSL, you know, technology. Uh, their, their school districts, my my cousin down in, in uh, the Dallas area, you know, actually went in to visit with the IT department of, of his district because there was, you know, there were some websites that they were running with student information that were just HTTPS. They weren't even secured. And anyway, there's all kinds of situations. So I think Apple's privacy is admirable. It's important for us as educational technology leaders and educators. We need to have uh, a similar focus on privacy. And I think, you know, more broadly, nationally, uh, we need to think about our values as a nation and how how are we, uh, you know, protecting and defending those here in the United States? And then how do we project that to the world? You know, it's not just we're not just trying to be the bad guy as far as Huawei. This is Wes's, you know, non-classified on the outside looking in interpretation. I mean, we really do see a, a new global uh tech cold war that is happening and, and it's playing out now between mainly the United States and China, but it's other countries as well. And privacy is at the heart of that. Absolutely. Well, one other quick note from CES, and then we can move on to other stories this week. Uh, the Bluetooth Alliance, that's the, the international nonprofit that deals with the Bluetooth standard, announced a new standard at CES this week. It's Bluetooth LE, I'm sorry, Bluetooth Audio LE. And for those of you that, that aren't deep in the Bluetooth world, uh, Bluetooth, currently their audio standard is Bluetooth 5.0. Many devices don't support Bluetooth 5.0, including, you know, modern, uh, audio and, and phone devices you can buy that have Bluetooth on them. But Bluetooth Audio LE is a low power version of Bluetooth audio that's likely to become the de facto standard in the coming couple of years. And unfortunately, it's it's a hardware standard, not just a software standard. So there won't be backwards compatibility for older devices to use that standard. You could still get on with an older device and use a more high energy standard, but um, that's an exciting announcement. W one of the biggest disappointments I've had is that I really did hope that uh, various hardware manufacturers getting rid of headphone jacks would, uh, would really uh, help push the Bluetooth universe forward. This is the first real sign that that's happening, but it's taken quite some time. And I still um, am often very frustrated by pairing and repairing and unpairing Bluetooth devices, despite the fact that manufacturers are getting rid of headphone jacks all over the place. It seems like it should be better than it actually is. You know, being our, our token Apple representative here, I will do a little shout out because I have now experienced AirPods twice. I mentioned, I think, driving the uh, 
part of the debate team at our school down to Austin at the beginning of December and <clears throat> leaving my headphones, these lovely Target $10 models that I, you know, I've actually washed and they still work great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my daughter loaned me her AirPods, which are Gen 1 AirPods, and I listened to them. Uh, so over the holidays, my sister was here and she has the new AirPod Pro which has noise canceling. Jason, it is incredible. Yeah. Now, it also makes you think about, you know, how important it is to disengage from our technology and make sure we're engaging with the people around us. Because here we have, you know, Christmas holidays, my parents, my sister and her family are here. And I'm sitting in the living room putting these on. And literally, I hear no one because these are, are noise canceling and, and they block out you know, music and voices and, and basically everything. And you can tap and have, I think, what's called a transparency mode where you get to still hear what you're listening to. But, like, if you're on the airplane or something and you wanted to kind of listen to the announcement or something like that, um, it's amazing, really incredible, really expensive, and only working with with, with iOS, uh, with Apple stuff. But, um, you know, again, it's... <laughs> We just uh, we just had a large bill that we paid today for our daughter's car to get fixed. We are not, you know, in the market to go out and buy any new tech at all. Uh, in fact, I even, you know, turned down the, the temptation as my wife, you know, called me with, with a, what was it, the uh, Google Show or whatever the Google uh, screen is, the, the smart speaker with the, the with the small screens for kitchen or whatever. And I was like, nope, nope, we don't need to do that right now. But... Given some disposable income, I think that would be near the top of my list. And the fact that it doesn't with AirPods, you know, work with Bluetooth, um, it's, it's, it's fancier than that, I think, or may maybe it does, but Apple's just made it work so much more seamlessly. Um, it seems to work the way that Bluetooth should. So hopefully this new Bluetooth standard is going to be better, uh, because that's been kind of a perennial thing. Our son, you know, had his car back here from Colorado and, Literally every time I wanted to connect my phone to his his uh, JVC, uh, I have to forget the device and yep. reconnect, and and that's a pain. I mean, at least the workaround worked, right? Yeah. But that to me has been kind of a typical, you know, USB experience, and I'm sure I'm not alone in having those kind of frustrations. Right. When I also note that you know of all of and I you know I I'm obviously surrounded by a lot of nerdy people. I work in a distance learning program at a university. I see a lot of college kids running around. I travel quite a bit, so I'm in airports. People that buy AirPods are still using their AirPods. Same with the Apple Watch, right? And and that that longevity uh, of of use of those products is quite extraordinary. And I think that's a credit to the great designers, uh, uh, not just by uh, function but also form from our friends at Apple. Jason, I am going to put forward a 2020 challenge for you for technology, oh, no. because oh, no. as you remember, I, I had a nine month experience just, you know, ditching the iOS <laughs> and completely going Android. So I think that, you know, in the spirit of uh, I wouldn't say knowing your enemy, but just, you know, knowing the landscape, uh, maybe you should contemplate a multi week Apple experience with, uh, you know, would Mike loan you, loan you an Apple watch and a phone? Maybe you guys could do some, some kind of a swap. Um, the good thing is with cloud, you know, it's not that big a deal. Our, my daughter yeah. and I just traded, traded phones and, yeah. you know, you get everything backed up. For me, the biggest deal was Google contacts and Apple contacts actually at that time. You'll be in a better place probably with all yeah. your Google stuff. <clears throat> but anyway, sometimes those get co-mingled as far as where you've saved your, right. saved your contacts and having duplicates. But anyway, I'll just, 
you know, kind of throw down the towel there to say, be very curious to see what you, if you had the full experience, let's even say AirPods, if it would be possible. Hey, maybe as the tech savvy administrator in residence, this is part of what NC needs to do to, you know, support your professional growth. So yeah, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Heidi, the executive director, know that I need if some. Uh, you need a letter of recommendation or a, a, a tweet, a tweet of recommendation. I'm, I'm your man. I'll be glad to put that for you. Absolutely good to hear. So, well, enough about stuff that we're probably never going to see in the market. Um, Wes, what else is going on this week? Okay. Well, let's talk about deep fakes. Let's talk politics. Uh, so Business Insider on January 7th has an article, Facebook just banned deep fakes, but the policy has loopholes. And for those of you not familiar, uh, deep fake technology uh, utilizes machine learning and takes a large amount of, of example video data and then can make somebody say whatever the person who is, you know, sort of behind the algorithm wants to make them say. Uh, we covered on the show a number of weeks ago this art uh, display. Actually, this guy had put something out about Mark Zuckerberg, but then some other people, uh, Kim Kardashian, and you know, I think I think maybe they did one about President Trump. I'm not positive, but anyway, you know, you can make people say whatever you want. Um, so I think this is a good thing that Facebook is getting, you know, weighing into this kind of of political. You know, this is, this is going to be huge. We've said it before on the show. I read another article tonight. I think this is that, that Washington Post one. Oh, well, I'll reference it. This was January 2nd, Washington Post. It says a deceptively edited video of Joe Biden signals what's coming, talking about the, the 2020 elections. Now, <clears throat> this Washington Post article was not talking about deep fakes. It was just talking about, you know, a very closely edited video, um, which frankly, just about anybody of us can do. I mean, if you've ever, taught an audacity workshop or shown people how to edit sound. You know, one of my favorite things to do there was saying, you know, record myself saying, I don't like mushrooms. And then I just highlight the word don't delete it. And you play it. And it's just, I like mushrooms. I mean, it's you know, very basic and simple, but <clears throat> that kind of editing isn't something that everybody has done. Uh, so the Washington post article is, is saying what we have also said on the show before. And I think it actually uh, the, the paragraph is good enough that it bears uh, reading here in terms of what we're going to expect. So, um, well, I should have gotten my. Anyway, he's they're they're just saying that we're we're in for it and we're going to just we're going to see see a lot of it. So. What are the um, categories that, you know, Facebook says are not going to qualify? I think parody and comedy, you know, fit in there. And so it's going to be difficult for them to discern, like, what what's parody? What's a parody deep fake? Um, I think they're going to be using this policy to hopefully censor out the most egregious examples. But, you know, disinformation, propaganda, um, you know, utilizing media in, in misleading ways, um, what happened with this Biden um, thing? And this this points to actually why, why journalists and, it, and it's just so important as far as mainstream media. That's the target of some folks who are creating these kinds of uh, of disinformation campaigns. Some people fell for this and they didn't fully check out the context and they went ahead and retweeted it and sent it out there. And then they had to backtrack, et cetera. So this is a major topic in my classroom now in terms of who do you who do you believe? What do you believe? Um, it's actually, I think, really sad how little of a filter we have for for young people in terms of 
um, the world of really dark humor. Even my fifth and sixth graders have seen a lot of memes in the last week talking about World War III. There's been a lot of worry that they've had. Um, and, and, you know, some of it's passed off as jokes and, and laughing. But anyway, um, who do you believe? Um, where are you getting your information? I mean, one of my fifth graders came in today, I think was saying, 737 got shot down over Iran. And I was like, who said that? You know, so anyway, we're talking about where the sources come from. I don't think it did. I didn't see that in any other mainstream media. Uh, or maybe, maybe it did. And I missed, it, missed it, the headline. It crashed, but it's still determining like that. Oh, is it? Okay. That happened last night. The uh, plane, uh, it's, I want to say it was from Kyrgyzstan, but yeah, the plane crashed just after taking off from uh, a Tehran airport, but I haven't seen anything more today regarding what the source of that might have been. But I mean, related to that, that the article I threw in there about, about that um, was uh, from, from USA Today, which is usually not a place I usually go for tech, but it was a really interesting article about um, the false images and facts that are being shared on the internet uh, after the, the uh, situation with Iran. And um, a lot a lot of that was, uh, you know, fake tweets that came from from the president. Others of it was um, uh, related to the. Well, I mean, the, the problem is, is there's a shade of truth in almost every th- one of these, but then mm-hmm. you know, editing turns it to something that it's not, including criticisms of Trump and Obama and President Bush and fake tweets and you know, and and the problem, of course, is is that if you hear the real story, like a, a snippet of the real story, and then later you start to see things that are slowly and surely moving away from the truth, it's believable because it's close enough to the truth to 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 kind of have your mind wander down that pathway, right? And that's the problem with all of this. And it's also, you know, uh, it, while uh, deep fakes are, are, are definitely problematic, you don't need something that eloquently technological to fool people, right? Like a, a, a falsified tweet is really enough, I think, to, to cause a lot of damage. And that goes back to, you know, we've talked about this over and over and over again. And, and, and unfortunately, it's, it's still not where it needs to be. Media literacy has to be part of the way we teach. And it doesn't really even matter what content you're teaching. Even if you are in a, in a classroom that doesn't do a lot of current event stuff, just the stuff that's passed around about, you know, science versus non-science is enough that you need to be concerned before you send people out to the open internet to go look for curriculum. That's just a lot of really unfortunately disinformation based sources out there. I want to go ahead and read a couple paragraphs here from this. Um, you know, and we, we say this often, we're not a political show. Uh, we're not here to talk about politics, but you know, in this area, in this arena, the intersection of, of disinformation, the weaponization of social media, um, the tech correction, meaning the ways in which tech companies need to be adjusting to, you know, Cambridge Analytica scandal, a lot of things that have, have come out. I mean, this is, this is very much, these are topics we need to be we need to be discussing and we need to be aware of. And so uh, I'm reading from this Washington Post article titled A Deceptively Edited Video of Joe Biden Signals What's Coming. Uh, this is by Greg Sargent on January 2nd. His opening paragraph, if you thought the 2016 election was a wash in disinformation and lies, get ready. The 2020 election is going to make that affair look like a knitting session. No, um, you know, uh, what, what, what am I trying to say? N- n- nothing against, you know, Mike's Mike's mom who has the uh, world-renowned uh, crafting channel. Um, so scrolling down a little bit in, into the article, as it talks about 
because it talks about the impeachment and what we've been seeing playing out. I, I hadn't really thought about this necessarily in terms of disinformation. Here's what he says. The entire Ukraine scandal for which Trump has been impeached is largely about disinformation. Trump extorted Ukraine to get it to announce public statements that would smear Biden with disinformation and help validate conspiracy theories that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in 2016. In effect, Trump was trying to pressure a foreign power to help manufacture more disinformation to help mislead U.S. voters about a domestic political opponent and absolve Russia of its original disinformation warfare campaign against this country. And it goes on to talk about Trump retweeting accounts from far-right conspiracy theories, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I am very thankful at this point that I'm having this opportunity to teach fifth and sixth grade media literacy and digital literacy and that we have a lot of autonomy um, because, you know, we've been doing an info pick project, you know, here for a couple of weeks. We started it before Christmas and we've just we've just been finishing it up. And and you're probably familiar. Info pick is, you know, basically something you see all the time in advertisements and you know, the news. Uh, a lot of times on on video news, you're going to see video moving in the background, which we would call like a B-roll shot rather than a talking head journalist A-roll. <clears throat> but then you've got text, you know, below it. And, and so we've been picking out even, you know, some of the, the things from the protest that was happening in Tehran, you know, they were using photographs and using text. And so my students are creating info pics and we're not creating at this point, you know, political ones. Uh, I actually in this lesson challenge them to to think about things they're curious about or problems that we do have in the world, things that, that they want to make a difference or things that they want to see improved. Uh, but the point is they are crafting media messages. And so, I, you know, one of the best ways to help anybody think more critically about media is to have them create media. And so that's one of the big reasons why we don't just want kids writing standard five paragraph essays and limiting themselves to handwritten or even keyboarded text. We've got to have them working with media, working with technology and crafting it, you know, and I should have used an image, but I love Harry Potter and in Harry Potter six, you know, Dumbledore and Harry are on this island. They have to go to get this, you know, whatever, one of the Horcruxes and, and Dumbledore drinks this nasty poison. And there's this whole scene where he's like, whirling around, um, you know, this like, I don't know, lightning or power, whatever. Like that's a vision I have of using or a metaphor I have of using technology and, and using images. Uh, but of course, what we want our students to be doing is to do that in ethical ways and responsible ways, you know, doing it powerfully. So anyway, connections to the classroom there, media literacy, uh, how, how many not to have you digress too much, but how, are you reading political stuff that much, Jason? And what percentage of your blog stuff would you say is, is politics oh, yeah. versus tech? Come on, come clean right now. We got the, you know, we've got the um, uh, polygraph, you know, strapped to your, your wrist right now. We'll, we'll know. So tell us the truth. Um, so I, you know, full disclosure, I mean, my undergraduate degree is in political science. Um, I taught government for a number of years in addition to history. My favorite, uh, type of history to teach is actually European history. So, uh, I'm not even talking about modern European history. I'm talking about things like Renaissance through the Russian Revolution and, and, and maybe through World War II. That's what I like to teach about, think about, write, write about. But obviously I have a big interest in politics and, you know, say what you want about the last, you know, 10 years. Um, and, and that covers both people that might be on one side of the political spectrum or the other. It's been certainly an interesting, um, a decade of politics, but the bottom line is, is that it's, it's pretty hard to escape it 
even though I don't think it's healthy to obsess over uh, that amount of media. And in fact, I think that's, that's part of the problem. I feel like we kind of keep running into is that, is that because there are so many sources available and there's no shortage of media, uh, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word legitimate here. I'm going to try to be careful, but there's no source of legitimate media that probably agrees with your, your vantage point if you hold mainstream political views, right? So, um, you know, there, there are lots of, of, of resources, but one of the strategies I've tried to, uh, be very, uh, uh, discreet about, uh, discreet, very, uh, concrete about is that I want, to, you know, keep my media consumption about politics and current events down to a handful of sources. And I'm sorry if this outs my political views, but I subscribe to and read regularly the New York Times. I subscribe and read to read the Washington Post. Um, I do listen to NPR and then, um, I also will occasionally read, um, some, some, uh, m- mainstream middle right magazines to get in-depth analysis there. So, uh, so I, I try to get a variety of views so I can help inform my own view. But, you know, you start to read beyond that. And again, no shortage of blogs, legitimate blogs, uh, policy uh, sites that have great analysis and you can get stuck in it. And I love it, right? I mean, I watch politics. Um, in, in the way a lot of folks watch sports, right? It's, the sport of it is, is part of what interests me because I, I have, I have background in that, but you get sucked in and it's hard not to get sucked in. Absolutely. Well, and it's become a lot more about winning. And this isn't, I don't think I did this as a geek of the week, but <clears throat> one of the reads, and I say reads, I listened. Yeah, that's right. I listened to it. I can't, I was going to go to my, my, uh, my Kindle app and try to pull up the title and I can't get it there because I listened to it on audible. Um, it was a fantastic book that I highly recommend that talked about our <clears throat> very polarized um, political environment that we live in today and you know, what we might do to transcend it really it actually compared a lot to the civil war and, and how polarized we were. But uh, the book is called uncivil agreement, how politics became our identity uh, by Liliana Mason. I'll actually drop that into the show notes. Uh, it was about a six and a half hour or six hour listen on Audible. But anyway, these are important things, right? We need to be able to talk about these things uh, among friends, in class. Um, there's a lot of things that we're just, we're, you know, we're such a polarized society. And, and I get this some with my students even, and I can hear them kind of, you know, I think parrot some things they're hearing just directly from, you know, news channels or, or parents or whatever. We're all, you know, the, in, the product of influences that we that we have. Um so why don't we, I want to talk about a China article. We got about 15, you know, a little less than 15 minutes left. I want to talk about a China article and I want to also uh, point to a screen time article. Did we talk about that New York Times, uh, screen time bad article last we did week? Not. I don't think we did. Okay. Uh, let's do China first. Um, so <clears throat> this is by Ross, uh, La Jeunesse. Uh, I'm butchering his name. He's running for Senate in uh, the state of Maine right now. And this is an article he published on January 2nd. On Medium, which is a, a blogging platform. It's not like the New York Times or, or, or CNN or something like that. But the title is, I was Google's head of international relations and here's why I left. And it's a really fascinating uh, look into when Google left, you know, that was probably 2010, uh, early 2010s, completely left China. You know, a lot of things we kind of glimpse into dimly 
because there are, you know, in, mil- in the case of government, military stuff, there's there's classification, secrecy. In terms of corporate stuff, right, there's things that, that are not disclosed. People sign non-disclosure agreements, and you just, you know, only get uh, a certain amount of information from different sources. Sometimes people leak information, but, you know, do you believe that? It's, it's murky. So, anyway, uh, he is, I think, also, you know, making a political uh, play here because, he, like I said, he is running for the Senate. But he's saying basically that, you know, the Google of the past that was Google, we will not be evil is gone now. And the focus really is on profits and compromise. And so Google is not standing up for those values of an unfiltered web of, you know, wanting to support human rights and and being willing to, you know, sacrifice profits. Um, And so anyway, I think that I think that is an article that's definitely worth uh, taking a look at. Have you given much thought, Jason, to this, that whole idea of kind of how values are playing out, whether we're talking about 5G, Huawei, you know, phones, um, you know, China companies, you know, tech cold war, what any quick, quick reflections you have on that? Well, I mean, specific to the article, this idea that, that, that Google's moved away from, you know, don't be evil and instead is, is, is profit motivated now. I just, I guess, I guess I don't understand that from the standpoint of what profits have Google been sacrificing to this point, right? They're not a company that struggles with profit. And in fact, if you just look at the opulence that they provide their employees, it's clear there's a lot of money to be made in advertising. It's clear there's a lot of money to be made in platforms. It's clear there's a lot of money to be made in in the products that they sell. So I guess for me, I, I don't I, I don't think any company has a corner in the ethical technology piece, right? A lot of of the folks that that will point fingers at Google um, or Microsoft or really any of the major tech platforms, you know, where whatever they're using, it probably also has ethical challenges if the profit motive is also involved. But it seems like you can do both, right? You can protect privacy and you can profit, right? But it also means, too, that broadly we have an issue. We as a culture have an issue. We have to stop expecting everything to be free, right? That, that, that's been the biggest problem with technology since day one, 25 years ago, is that we um, you know, advertising supported um, is is one thing. Data trading advertising supported is another. And we may need to start to see value differently to be able to do that. So um, I, you know, obviously I'm in one of these architectures pretty heavily as a Chromebook user and obviously as an Android user and as a school Google-based user. But I, I still don't think that anyone has a moral high ground when it says, you know, I am using this technology completely ethically or my company uses it completely ethically. Profit motives involved. Uh, absolutely. And, and also, uh, we as end users have to start thinking about this a little differently. So I don't think there's any good answers in what I just said, but we're going to have to continue to discuss this one. Better. Well, it's complicated and it's oh, yeah. mixed and muddied, right? And these are huge companies that have all kinds of different products. And I guess my last thought on this, I, I'm only about maybe a fifth of the way through this podcast. I'll try to drop this in as well. Um, this is from a, a podcast I've not subscribed to before called Econ Talk uh, from the Library of Economics and Liberty at Stanford University. And this is an episode with Amy Webb, who is my favorite futurist. If you don't follow Amy Webb on Twitter, just do that right now. Uh, it's called Amy Webb on Artificial Intelligence, Humanity, and the Big Nine. And the, the Big Nine is, is her, her latest book. And she's lived in both China and Japan. 
And so my my kind of take on this is, yeah, it sounds I mean, the, the, the giving up of profits isn't obviously Google is making tons of money and Alphabet is, too. But the Chinese market and the, the potential not only for profit today, but profit in, in the decades to come. And that's one of the things that I really was getting you know yesterday listening to Amy talk about the Chinese market. I just I've been there four times. Right. I've been to mainland China three times and Hong Kong once. And by the way, if you're listening, I'd love to come back. In fact, I'm sure Jason Neifer would love to come back and speak at your conference and uh, share his pearls of wisdom. Um, I don't know that many of us have our heads wrapped around just how incredibly huge and dynamic and powerful uh, not only the economy of China is, but the demography, yeah. the people. You know, no one has a crystal ball. All kinds of things can happen. But based upon what we see happening right now, you know, Chinese is a great language to learn and study companies that want to be relevant and playing on a global, you know, scene are going to have to be operating in China. Um, I mean, there's stuff playing out now with the Silk Road Initiative and the way that 5G and Huawei technology and all that's being put out. I mean, you know, China's making friends uh, through investments in, in a lot of different places, a lot of strategic alliances. Um, Amy has a great PDF that she wrote at the end of December, and, and maybe I'll, I'll put that in for next week's show because we can look at it. It is a phenomenal summary of all kinds of tech events and and things that have happened and, and kind of stitching them together and just and you look at space and what they're doing there and, and a lot of different fronts. So anyway, I think it's it's a worthwhile article to read. It's good to think about in terms of uh, of values and privacy and those those kinds of things. But as is often the case with both politics and economics, there's a lot of pragmatism that has to come in here as well. And so, you know, I think that's a big reason why Google is, is back in there is they just can't ignore the Chinese market in terms of search and in terms of advertising. So the last one um, I'll mention, and then if you got any other articles to pick up, we may have time. Uh, is screen time really bad for kids? This is a New York Times article from December the 18th. And we have talked, and I'm sure we'll talk again about screen time and, you know, multiple times. The, um, one of the people I was visiting with today setting up for these <clears throat> uh, school visits that we're going to do in a couple weeks to the Dallas area, you know, said, you know, the last two years for his parents, and this is true for us too, screen time is like the, one of the biggest things parents are aware of and concerned about. And so this is a fantastic article. Kim Tingley is the author here, and she does a good job highlighting this idea that we need to stop treating screen time as a monolithic thing. In other words, it's just one thing. It is not. It is not the same thing to be, you know, watching a video, playing a video game, or, hey, how about creating a podcast or, you know, editing ebooks as I was doing last night, you know, for my own writing and, and tonight for these 12th graders that are writing children's picture books. There's a lot of things that we do with our screens. And so, I do think a lot of people are alarmed at how important these things are becoming. It's because we're merging with our technology, right? I mean, my thoughts, Jason's thoughts. I mean, can you imagine yourself, Jason, without your screen professionally? I mean, you probably no. fantasize about that to a certain extent. And that's why getting away from the screen can be a very important and healthy, you know, thing for us to do. But this is a fantastic article. It's great. Uh, as we're considering our parent university sessions that we'll be offering this spring, hopefully, you know, at least two or three more. We're going to be meeting about that next week. Uh, you know, this, this is an important thing to help parents 
and and teachers recognize and navigate uh, what are we doing with our screen rather than demonizing the screen and demonizing, you know, the tech. We need to be more sophisticated in our discussions about this and, and also probably in the ways that we limit and, you know, restrict what kids do and, and what we do ourselves. So if you didn't have your, your screen, Jason, can, you know, can you, could you go back to long, long form correspondence? Uh, no, I mean, and well, and, and the other piece too is I just, I don't want to, right? Like I, you know, I, I, I agree there's, we, we have to figure out where these plug in still and we haven't nailed it yet, but it also, I mean, I just, just the collaboration alone, right? Yeah. Right to the back of your head is exactly right, sir. Um, but you know, I, this podcast is an example of something I'm not willing to trade in on because there's no way to do this otherwise. Right. Absolutely. You know, we live, you know, 1500 miles from each other. We see each other maybe once a year if we're lucky. And yet we maintain this, 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 this friendship, this collegiality, this, this opportunity every week to talk with one another about topics of interest. And, you know, for the two dash million of you, I don't know what, how many of you are, are, are exactly listening at any given time, but there are, you are listening to us have a conversation from, you know, six, States from from one another, and we're able to to do this because the technology provides unparalleled connections that have never existed in this way in human history. Mm-hmm. And you know, I there are a lot of cranks in the world to tell you how how terrible the tech is. In a lot of cases, they aren't wrong. The problem is is that we can't uninvent this stuff, and there is value here. Right. So um, the screen time stuff, you know, you, you remember my generation, I, I would say our generation, West and I's generation was supposed to turn out to be terrible, blubbering idiots because television was 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 used way too much. To be frank, I grew up with a, in a television heavy environment that if I could go back and tell myself to watch less television and get outside more, I probably would. But I turned out a perfectly functional adult, as it turns out. And, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the hand wringing about this, some of it at some point may lead to, to an interesting piece of information on how we might want to parent or how we might want to teach or how we want to interact with the devices ourselves. But I think the naysaying on this stuff is, is just, is, is, is too much. And there's a balance somewhere, right? I'm also not in the tech or nothing camp either, but at the same time, you know, there's a balance somewhere and we all together, not just as teachers, not just adults, but as humans, we got, we got to figure this out. So let's roll up our sleeves and do it. Awesome. I'll do my geek of the week real quick. Cause I think we're almost out of time. Uh, mine is uh, another podcast. <clears throat> this is from the humane tech podcast. I've mentioned this before. Uh, this is Tristan Harris. Uh, what uh, it's one of his efforts. In fact, one of the articles, Jason, that you put in, um, about uh, the deepfakes. Um, this was the CNET article on January 8th. Deepfakes are a risk to 2020 elections. Experts tell Congress. Tristan Harris was one of the uh, people doing that particular interview. Um, and I should say, I don't think Tristan did this particular interview. He um, has a co-host whose name I'm not being able to pull up right now. And anyway, I think he interviewed, but it was Gloria Mark and she's at uh, the informatics informatics Department at, um, at UCI, which is, I think, UC Irvine, Irvine yep. in California, and it's called Pardon the Interruptions. This is absolutely fantastic. There, are, There is research that she's done and others, but we have not had enough 
on the cognitive impact of interruptions. And we're not just talking social media. We're talking email. We're talking all kinds of things. And, and this isn't coming on the podcast. My metaphor today for this, talking to my friend Eric, it's, it's sort of like we're in, there's a hurricane. And we have to go through this hurricane and all the hurricane is this information that's, that's all out there. And instead of being able to get into our car where we can be climate controlled and protected from the elements, we can go through this thing. Like we're all naked walking into, you know, pelting rain, hail, you know, gale force winds. We're being buffeted around and it's just crazy. And so this podcast talks about, uh, you know, um, how important it is that we engage in deep work, that we find ways to not, um, you know, be interruption filled, how as people, it's not just our technology pinging us. It's also our mind saying, well, wait a minute. What, you know, I, I better go check my, you know, check this. I better go look at this. I mean, we're, we're actually now craving and, and our minds are regularly wanting to have those kinds of interruptions. But that has an impact on the kind of deep thinking we can do, the deep work we can do, the creativity that we have, um, you know, a lot of things. So highly recommend that. This podcast is one that I'm kind of going back to as well. I've only probably listened to about maybe three or four of their episodes. And this one is from um, actually August 14th, 2019. Uh, but again, it is called Pardon the Interruptions. It's from the Your Undivided Attention podcast, and it's awesome. Great. Thank you. And I just want to share, there, there's so many of these now, and, and it's in my mind, it's unlikely that any of these will become the alternative to the major social media platforms. But um, I followed Dr. Dan Willingham, Daniel Willingham, who's a cognitive scientist at the University of Virginia that does a lot of work in the science of learning. And he announced, I, I just follow him on Facebook. I don't have a, a, a personal friendship with him or anything, but he announced that he's leaving Facebook because of, of, of their advertising and economic model is moving to MeWe. Never heard of it, so I signed up and I asked Dr. Willingham to be my friend on MeWe, and now I have one friend on MeWe. So in case you have not heard of MeWe before, and there are literally dozens of, of alternative uh, sites um, uh, that are trying to become kind of like the, the alternative, the not Facebook or the not Twitter, but I thought I'd mention it because I am now available on MeWe. Very good. So Dr. Fryer... Can people find you on MeWe? Not yet, but I'm downloading the app right now, so you will be able to soon. Uh, however, I will not be reusing my password from a previous account, as we talked about last week, because that's stupid, uh, especially if you use one that's been involved in a breach, and it's on the dark web. But I can be found on Twitter, where I am W. Fryer, as you can see below my name here. <clears throat> I'm also blogging and podcasting periodically on speedofcreativity.org. And my media literacy lessons and other resources for the classes I'm teaching are available on mdtech.cassidy.org. How about you, Dr. Knife? I'm available on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. I am the NCCE Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence. Uh, where you can find me at blog.ncc.org and representing um, uh, myself and my day job organization and NCC, I will be speaking at the Idaho Educational Technology Association in early February in Boise, Idaho. Very excited to return back to that great regional conference um, and share some of the tech love. But this here is a different kind of tech love. It's the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We are a once a week podcast that talks about educational technology 
uh, through kind of a, the headlines in the major tech media. You can find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. I've yet to find a podcast app in 2020 that doesn't have EdTechSSR available. If you can't find it there, though, you can always go to our YouTube channel. You can go to our website, EdTechSR.com, where we offer little tiny downloads for your phone, desktop, computer, laptop, computer, so that you can um, listen to it or um, uh, uh, download it to a mobile device and carry it along with you. Uh, We are always here live on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time. I believe it's 400 UTC or some other time of the day. We love live viewers and and are able to take comments in in the many places where you can find us uh, broadcasting live, including YouTube. But until next time, we bid you a, 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 a balanced technology life and stay stay safe and stay safe, stay safe and stay savvy. And stay off the email a little bit tomorrow, Jason. It's yeah, time, It's time for a break. <laughs> Good night.